Well, you've got me for one more week. Uh, God willing, Terry will be back next Sunday. Um, but if you have a Bible, would you please open it? We're going to continue from where we left off last week. Um, open your Bible to Romans, the book of Romans, chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Let's, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for giving us another morning that we can come together and worship you as a group. It's so fun and so encouraging to come and uh, join one another as we seek you. We seek to worship you. We seek to learn more from your word. Lord, your Bible is truth. Basic instructions before leaving earth. And Lord, we look to your word and we just pray, God, that you would speak to us this morning once again. Uh, we love you and we need you oh so much. And we give this to you. We put this service into your hands in Jesus' name. Amen. I've titled the message, um, Wealth, The Wealth of the Believer. The Wealth of the Believer. There's a couple in their 90s who were both having problems remembering things. And they went to their doctor. They went for their checkup. And the doctor said, you know, physically, you're perfectly fine. You're healthy. Um, but maybe a simple solution would be for you to just write things down. Uh, write things down so you don't forget. And so the older couple, again, uh, very elderly, beyond their 90s, or in their 90s, I should say. They're at home later that night. They're sitting down. The husband stands up and asks his wife, would you care for anything from the kitchen? And she says, well, actually, yes, I'd, I'd really like uh, a bowl of ice cream. And he says, okay. She says, you should probably write that down. He says, look, I don't need to write that down. I, a bowl of ice cream. She said, but wait, I, I actually also want some strawberries with that. Okay. And she says, well, don't you think you should write that down? He says, look, it's no big deal. Ice cream with strawberries. I got it. She says, but wait, I also want some whipped cream. She says, now I know you're going to forget that, so write it down, please. And he says, look, for goodness sake, I got it. It's nothing complicated. You want ice cream with strawberries and whipped cream on top. And so he leaves kind of irritated. He goes to the kitchen, and you hear a bunch of rattling for 20 minutes, and he comes back, and he brings a plate to her and hands it to her, and it's a plate of bacon and eggs. <laughs> well, she looks at the plate, kind of confused, and she says, well, what happened to the toast? You know, many Christian believers, as believers, we forget. We forget the wealth that we have. There are so many blessings that God has given you. Once you say, Lord, would you be my God? And you say, I believe in you. I believe that you died and that you rose again. And I, I pray that you would save me and, and just give me eternal life. And you place that trust in him. You have this automatic wealth that he gives to you. And yet we live through life and we worry. Um, perhaps our physical bank account doesn't look the way it should. Perhaps our retirement plan is not that good or maybe non-existent. In Romans chapter 5, Paul gives us several benefits 
he lists riches and even tells us that we have the best retirement plan that you could ever hope for. And so let's go ahead and start Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Paul continuing says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so that first word, therefore, that is reaching back to what he spoke about in the previous chapter of chapter 4 about being justified by faith. He says, look, we're not justified by works. We're not justified by circumcision. It's not by the law that you can become justified, but it's only by faith. And by the way, faith is the only way that we ever attain this peace for the soul. We try to attain peace in so many different ways, but the simplest way that God has provided, the only way he's provided, is simply to place your faith in him, to which then he declares you righteous or justified. And then as Paul says, we have peace. You know, I was thinking about uh, the United States. I looked up how many years the United States has been at peace. Uh, That is a time when the United States as a nation has not been involved in a war. Since 1776, about 92% of the time, our country has been at war in some way, shape, or form. You can pick any year, any year from 1776 to now, and there is a 91% chance that we were at war. The only, you know, we've never gone a decade without being in war. The most we've gone is five years, five years that the United States wasn't at war, and that was during the Great Depression from 1935 to 1940. And it's pretty interesting, it's alarming to think, man, we've been at war a lot, but it's even crazier to think that the non-believer has not had a single day when, like it or not, they're not at war with God. Now, you might say, hey, if, if you're a non-believer, you might say, look, I don't have anything against God or against Christians. I, I mean, I'll let him do and say whatever he wants to say. Well, I'm sorry, that didn't really have anything to do with it. There's something that God has against the sinner, and that is their sin. In this chapter, God, or Paul refers to non-believers as ungodly in verse 6. He refers to them as sinners in verse 8. He implies that they are awaiting God's wrath in verse 9. And he literally calls the non-believer an enemy of God in verse 10. And so, if you're a non-believer, the Bible says you are an enemy of God. Isaiah 48.22 says, There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. When I first met my wife, Sarah... She had one of, if not the ugliest, the ugliest cars that I had ever seen. It was an old Volvo. Um, It didn't have any shine or luster to it. It was like a tan color. And it was a really poor car. And I drove it for a few years. I'd go to the golf course. And as I would drive up, my dad and his friends would just laugh at me as I drove up in this car. Um, But it was a fun car. Um, I ended up selling it for 100 bucks because I had just put a new battery in it and I wanted to get that money back. But 
there was this bumper sticker that she had on it. And um, I, it's kind of one of the reasons I like the car. And this, maybe you've seen it. This bumper sticker had two lines on it. And the top line said, no Jesus, no peace. And no was spelled N-O. No Jesus, then no peace. And then the second line again said, no Jesus, no peace. But this time no was spelled K-N-O-W. No Jesus, and then you will know peace. There is no other way to have peace except through knowing Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53 says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And so to be in peace with God means to be in a relationship with God in which all hostility caused by sin is removed. The sin problem that separated you from God is gone. And so a justified sinner who is saved and declared righteous can go into the presence of God guiltless, uncondemned, and righteous. When you believe and you place your faith, your faith in Jesus Christ, that sin is gone, it's forgiven, it's forgotten, you can talk to God freely. You can fellowship with him continually. You can do so eternally whenever you want. Why? Because you have peace with him. So because we're justified by faith, we have this peace with God. The second thing Paul lists is in verse 2. We have access. Look at verse 2 of Romans chapter 5. Through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We have access. The New Living Translation says we have access to this undeserved privilege. That word um, is Compromised of two terms, ago and pros. Ago means to bring, and pros means facing. And so it's used of one person bringing another person into the presence of the third party, a third person. And then it says that we can go and we can stand. We can stand in the very presence of God. It doesn't say we have to sneak in. It doesn't say we have to cower in and hope God doesn't tell us to get out. It says we can go, we can plant our feet, and we can enjoy the presence of God anytime we wish. Wearsby points out, the Jew was separated from God's presence by the veil in the temple. The Gentile, the Gentile was separated from the temple by a wall that said, if any Gentile passes this wall, they will be put to death. But Jesus died and he tore that veil, as we read in Luke 23. And he broke down that wall, as we read in Ephesians 2. So in Christ, believing Jews and Gentiles have access to God. We have access to God, to this grace. Look at the second part of verse 2. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That word rejoice, one uh, Greek commentator said, it really means to glory, to boast, or to triumph. Triumph, He said rejoice isn't a strong enough word. It's to brag about. 
It's something to brag about. You know, in the Bible, we're told we shouldn't brag about ourselves. We should be humble. We're told God is against the prideful, but he gives grace to the humble. But we are told that we can brag about God and what he's done for us. Uh, 1 Corinthians one thirty one: He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And so it says we rejoice or we brag about, we glory in the hope of the glory of God. That word hope is hope and expectation. So there's this joyful, confident expectation of eternal salvation. It's looking forward to what God is going to fulfill. When we are in his presence in heaven and we are enjoying just this beautiful time where there's no more pain, no more sorrow, no more sin. A few verses. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.17, Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Philippians 1.6 says, Being confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Peter describes this inheritance that we have as being uh, incorruptible, undefiled, and an inheritance that does not fade away, which is reserved in heaven for you. We have so much to look forward to in heaven. And so Paul says we rejoice in it. We look forward to it. We even brag about what we have to look forward to. Considering those first three things, peace, access, and this hope of the glory, Wiersbe puts it like this. The peace with God takes care of the past. He no longer looks at at our sins and holds them against us. Access to God takes care of of the present. We can come to him at any time we want, any time we need. And hope of the glory of God takes care of the future. For one day, we shall share in his glory. And so, it's pretty neat. Now, the fourth thing that Paul lists, we might scratch our heads on this one. He's going to say that we glory in tribulations, but it's because of what we know. Look at verses 3 and 4. Paul says, and not only that, But we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now, Paul has this list, this process that takes place whenever we as the believer go through tribulations or troubles or afflictions or oppression. That word is used as meaning... uh, crushing it's used of uh, or describing the process of of crushing an olive with heavy rocks in order to extract oil something interesting about trials and tribulations for the believer you see for the believer trials work for him and not against him for the non-believer, you go through difficult times and you think, what am I doing wrong? It's just, I'm not having good luck. You know, maybe I didn't wear my lucky socks or what have you. Things just don't seem to be going my way. For the believer, we're tempted to think that. I'm guilty of it. You know, Lord, what am I doing wrong? Why are, why I, my heart aches right now. I'm so confused. I don't know what to do. But you need to know 
that trials actually happen for a reason. Paul said that in Romans 8, 28. He, he said, we know that all things happen and God uses them for good. All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. God uses them. I like to say God is efficient. He doesn't waste time. He can use any circumstance and he uses it to, uh, to accomplish his will. Now, Paul, he wasn't speaking except from experience. Uh, listen to this list. He was beaten. He was imprisoned. He was given 39 lashes five different times. He was stoned with rocks nearly to death. He was shipwrecked three times. He was stranded one day and one night in the open ocean. And he was also left for dead. Would you like to go on a missionary or a, a missions trip with Paul the Apostle? I don't know, right? Didn't have the best track record. But Paul, looking back, he says, look, every single time that I went through something, I saw God work. I saw God's purpose. And so he has this process. He says, look, when you go through tribulations, they produce perseverance. The King James Version translates it as patience. It produces patience, produces perseverance or endurance. The best definition I found of that was like this. This is speaking of a man who is unswerved from his purpose and loyalty to faith by even the greatest trials and sufferings. This man is unswerved from his loyalty to the faith that he has in God, no matter what trials and sufferings come his way. Uh, a, a good definition, definition of patience is, and I thought this was kind of a comical um, definition, it's the quiet endurance of what we cannot but wish was removed. The quiet endurance of what we cannot but wish removed. You think about yourself, you know, and it's interesting, you know, you look at families and young families with multiple kids and you hear the kids screaming at the table next to you in the restaurant and you're about going crazy in your mind and you see the parents there just calm, right? Just on their phone or just hanging out and we're like, we want to go and help them, don't we? We're like, hey, uh, Mikko, can you, can you stop doing that, please? Because it's kind of annoying, right? But we build up this endurance. Those parents, they love their kids. They love their children. The noise almost brings them joy. When Sarah and I are at home and sometimes the kids are, are fighting, I say sometimes, but I mean when all the time the kids are fighting, I'm just kidding. When there's noise at home, to me it brings comfort. And I have to remind myself, you know, there's going to come a time when that noise isn't going to be there anymore, right? Because I know they grow up so fast. People tell me all the time. But we build up this endurance, this patience. Um, Job said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then it says, in all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. So next time before you want to charge God with wrong, ask yourself what he might be trying to do. So produces perseverance or patience and then 
it produces character. Perseverance produces character. That could be translated, it produces an approved character. That means to put to the test for the purpose of approving. That's the idea of that term. And so when we go through tribulations, it produces this patience, which produce this character that's been tested and tried and proven. From that character, Paul says, then we have hope. And interestingly, what I found about this word hope, it's not a lower degree of faith, the way Paul uses it. As someone might say, I hope for heaven, but I'm not sure of it. That's not what Paul means here. It means invariably the confident expectation of future good. Hope here means the confident expectation of future good. And so what faith assures us will be ours, hope accordingly expects it. Hope expects it. And so trials and tribulations, you go through this process, in the end, you have hope. Here's an example. You think about the children of Israel. They were in bondage. God sent Moses. When they were being delivered out of Egypt, God did many mighty wonders and miracles. At the end of the plagues, they witnessed how if they believed God and they um, killed the innocent lamb and they put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts, they witnessed how the angel of death passed over them. They left Egypt because Pharaoh finally said, go ahead and go, get out of here, we don't, fine, your God is God, leave, right? They're going, they get to the Red Sea, the Egyptians start chasing them again. And they start to almost complain again, saying, Moses, why did you bring us out of here? Moses tells them, do not be afraid, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. And what happens is, you know, God gets between the Egyptians and the Israelites by a pillar. So the, Israel, or so the Egyptians cannot get to the Israelites. And God parts the Red Sea. And the, the Israelites walk through the Red Sea. And so you consider all of that and you see they just witnessed God's mighty faithfulness. They just witnessed God's mighty faithfulness. And so those tribulations, they give God the opportunity to show us his faithfulness, which then develop a confident expectation of future good. You see how God works? Very efficient. So not only tribulations, but look at verse 5. Verse 5. Paul says, now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Hope does not disappoint. So the next thing Paul says is that we get to experience God's love and God's faithfulness. We get to experience it. First of all, Paul says we will not be disappointed. That means we're not going to be dishonored. We're not going to be put to shame. We're not going to be humiliated. In a world where people, circumstances, 
disappoint us, and yes, even governments disappoint us, right? God will never disappoint you. God's promises, God's word will never humiliate you. They will never put you to shame. God can only be true to his word. And it says, Paul says, the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That phrase, poured out, it means to cause someone to experience something in an abundant or full manner. It means to cause to fully experience. And so the Holy Spirit causes us to fully experience the love of God. And I think I can, I can totally attest to that. The Holy Spirit floods the heart of God's love. And he does it with me all the time. He constantly reminds me, Jesus told his disciples when he was leaving, look, I'm not going to leave you orphans. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit and he will teach you and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. And don't you, Christian, don't you recall all the times that the Holy Spirit brings to your remembrance God's love? When he reminds you of God's faithfulness, when he reminds you of what you read in God's word that morning or that week, he's always giving you that full experience. And while we shouldn't base God's love on emotions or feelings, but I, I think there's sometimes when God knows we need that. And I can tell you there's times when I feel, I know, I experience God's presence. I just know. How? I cannot write it down in words, in a formula. I just know that I have experienced God's presence and God's love. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Look at verses 6 through 8. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so not only does the Holy Spirit help us to fully experience that, but Jesus, God, demonstrated his, his love towards us. So first of all, we see that he died for us, and he refers to us as the ungodly. He died for the ungodly, those who were altogether repulsive in the eye of God. Jesus died for that. Secondly, Paul says, when we were without strength, that is, there was nothing between us and perdition. We were helpless. Christ died for us. Then he says, in due time, that means in just the right time or when it was the most strategic time, Christ died for us. Now, in God's sovereignty, Jesus died. He came and died about 2,000 years ago. Why at that time period? I don't know for sure. I don't understand. But God in his sovereignty saw that at as just the right time, the perfect strategic time for him to do that. That's when he did it. And last, he says that he died for us while we were still sinners. 
uh, not because we were Jews or Greeks, not because we were rich or poor or righteous or good, but he died for us because we were plain sinners. You know, it's interesting. We find ourselves doing favors for people that we think might be able to pay us back in some way or another. And that's horrible of me to say, I know. Um, We should do things without expecting things back, but I see it all the time. It happens over and over again in business. You you do things, you do jobs for another person who might be able to return the favor and whatnot. Is that wrong? I'm not saying it's wrong, but God, he died for us knowing that we could never pay him back. What a generous God. 1 John 4.10 says, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us first and sent his son to be the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so we fully enjoy God's love. The sixth thing that I see here is that we are saved from God's wrath. Look at verses 9 and 10. Paul says, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And so when we were sinners, he died for us. We were saved from his wrath. And that is what happened when you gave your life to Christ. And there is this wrath that is going to take place. It's going to happen. Paul here is working two contrasts. He says, look, first of all, we were enemies and now we're friends. It happened first through Christ's death, but imagine through what happens through his life. If Christ's death was so powerful... Imagine how much more powerful he will be as the living, glorified God. So you see, this wrath, the Bible portrays a righteous God who cannot overlook sin. He's righteous, he's just, he can't overlook it. But this same God also provided an avenue for fellowship with himself. And so when you give your life to to Christ, you have no fear of the future wrath that will take place. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. Uh, who is it that condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us, Romans 8.34. And so the believer will not have to face the great white throne judgment, which is referred to as the second death, which is the day when all who died having rejected Christ will be resurrected. Those sinners will be resurrected. And the Bible speaks of this day um, when Jesus, the righteous judge, will sit on the great white throne and every individual will come and stand before him. And it says that books will be opened and they will give an account for every single sin that they're guilty of. 
And then they will be sent to spend eternity in the lake of fire. So the justified person doesn't have to fear that because we've been saved from wrath. That's where we get the term. You know, when I was 19 years old, I got saved. Well, saved from what? Saved from the wrath, the judgment, the second death. We've been saved. The last thing that I see here is that we have friendship with God. Look at verse 11. It says, and not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Now that reconciliation, that word means a restoration to favor. And so we don't only rejoice in the fact that we've escaped God's wrath, but we triumph in confidence knowing that we have this friendship, this atonement, as the King James Version translates it. Atonement with God. That word atonement, best definition I found, at one mint. At one mint. At one mint. That is the making two estranged parties at one. We have this atonement with God. And so all of these things, if you are a believer, you have this wealth. Do you see it? Don't complain that you, things aren't going your way. Even when tri trials and tribulations are happening, don't complain and ask God what, what his problem is. Ask God, Lord, what are you trying to teach me here? What are you trying to do? In Jeremiah 9.23, we read this. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. What do you brag about in life? Do you ever catch yourself bragging about what you've accomplished? Be careful. Do you ever brag, although not even to other people, to yourself? And say, look what I've done. Be careful. Do you ever brag about money? Look out. Because all that is going to perish. You can't take it with you. As Christians, you know what we should be bragging about? All of these things. The wealth that we have spiritually. Now, for the non-believer, for a person that doesn't have Christ in their life, if you, if you are living this life and you're like, look, I'll go to church, I'll just go with my family because it's good for them, and I don't really care about God, let him do what he wants to do, but I'm just hanging out. Or perhaps you haven't made the decision to follow Christ. Well, think about it this way. Without Jesus Christ, you can't have peace. There's no way. You will not have peace. Without Jesus Christ, 
you won't have access to God and his grace. Without Jesus Christ, you won't have his eternal retirement plan. Without Jesus Christ, tribulations, they work against you. Without Jesus Christ, you won't have the Holy Spirit to teach you God's love. Without Jesus Christ, you will face God's wrath. You don't want to be there for that, uh, for that thing that happens at the great white throne judgment. You don't want to be there for that event. Without Jesus Christ, you are not God's friend, but you are his enemy. Horrible list if you're not a believer. So make that decision. Let's go ahead and let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have given us all of these things, so many riches. Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged, that we wouldn't forget. Lord, that you would constantly remind us of these things. And Lord, as some of us might be going through those trials and tribulations, Lord, it's never something that we look forward to. But we want to tell you right now that we trust you. We look to you. And we ask, okay, Lord, what what do you want to teach me? What do you want to prove to me and show me? Lord, may our outlook during those times be godly. Lord, for those that don't know you, who have turmoil in their hearts. They don't have peace. Lord, they don't have access. Lord, I pray for that heart right now, that they would choose wisely to believe in you, to trust in you. And if that is you this morning, God is calling you. He's he's crying out to you, if you will. And he's telling you, look, I have all these things that I want to give you. You just need to tell me that you want them. You need to say yes. And God wants to give them to you. But will you receive what he wants to give you? Perhaps you've been asking yourself, why don't I have peace Perhaps things are going just fine in your life and you think there's still something missing. What God is showing you, he's telling you, you don't have my peace. Would you pray this prayer and ask him to be your God? Ask him to give you this peace. Repeat after me and just say this in your heart to him and say, Lord Jesus, I believe in you with all of my heart. I believe that you died for my sins and that you rose again from the grave. And that you are seated at the right hand of the Father and that you are making intercession for me. I ask, Lord, that you would forgive me for all of my sins. Cleanse me from my unrighteousness. And give me your righteousness that I may have eternal life. I ask you this by faith, Lord, in Jesus' name. And with that, Father, take us this week. Go before us. Lead us and guide us. May we live for you. May we brag about all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.